Luke chapter 14, if you would stand with me, please. Gospel of Luke chapter 14. Starting in verse 25, we're going to read down to the end of the chapter, Luke 14. Read aloud with me. Dean, would you do me a favor? That is my water there. If you would grab it for me. Dean, for, uh, Dean, Luke 14. I kind of been up most of the night, so. Um, Luke 14, verse 25. Let's, let's read together, okay? And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest haply, after he hath laid the foundation, and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build, and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make a war against another king, sitteth not down first, and consulteth whether he be able with ten thousand, to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, He sendeth an ambassage, and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you, that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. We'll stop there. Father, we bow before you and ask you, God, to help us understand why you said we can't be your disciple. Obviously, you want everybody in the world. You're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Obviously, you promise that whosoever believeth on him shall shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Obviously, you want everybody saved, but not everybody can just claim to be a follower of Jesus. Lord, we see some conditions here that you put on discipleship, and I'm glad for it. We've taken it far too lightly. We forget that it costs to follow you. It costs you everything to save us. So we pay nothing for that. We receive that as a gift. But if we're going to follow you, we need to be ready to count the cost. So Lord, I pray that we would be willing, ready, and determined this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Now, before I go on, I want to say that my dad died last night at midnight. Well, I got the call at midnight. He had died about 30 minutes before. That's my dad. And um, he's 84 years old. Um, You know, death is not uh, something to play with. You know, when you're young, you think you're invincible. You, you, um, You never worry about that. But as you have uh, opportunity, as you're older, you realize it is just around the corner. And this was unexpected. He had a, a botched operation on his back, 
that paralyzed him from the stomach down, and he lost all hope of, of ever getting better. And um, then he was going through periods of sickness and partial dementia and stuff. And I kept waiting. I was told, well, wait till he gets better because he would start a sentence and then he would just not finish. So I didn't know what to do. So I'm kicking myself. But the rest of my family has been around him. I'll be going over it this week, hopefully, as things get settled. But that's my dad. And he will be so missed. Um, he wasn't there uh, for a chunk of my life from the time he left when I was 12. But when I got 17, when I became 17, I got saved. Uh, God put on my heart that my dad needs to be very important in my life again. And God allowed him to be very important in my life. <clears throat> I talked to him on Friday. And uh, um, just the hard thing is he's in eternity now. And he never got saved. So do not wait because you could pass off yourself. And if you're saying, well, I got time, you don't. You don't. All right. <clears throat> we're going to be, we're wrapping up 2018. We're in the 2nd of December. There's 29 days left and we're into 2019. We have been in a year-long study of the book of Nehemiah where God showed us about building and rebuilding things. Aren't you glad that God rebuilds broken things? You know, communication always breaks down. I worked for the telephone company for about seven years, and we did a lot of research about why things break and how to keep things from breaking down. But telephone lines break, communications break down, electronics break down. But people break down, too. And uh, prayer life, that breaks down. We, we kind of lose the joy that we had when we spent time with God in prayer. Hearts and minds get broken. Our walk with God and our worship and, and, and our time with Him just sort of just falls apart. Normal life in our nation has been rapidly falling apart. But God is a rebuilder. God is in the business, as we've looked at the book of Nehemiah, of calling not the politicians and not the world's scientists, but he's calling God's people to rebuild. So take it very serious that our job is not just to meet on a Sunday, but our job is to be a part of rebuilding what's been broken by sin. <clears throat> now we have studied much of the book of Nehemiah. There are 13 chapters in Nehemiah. We got to chapter 10. Isn't that good? At least we got that far, verse by verse. But the greatest truth, I need you to go to Nehemiah. I want to show you the greatest scripture in the entire book of Nehemiah. And it's before Psalms, if you haven't been there in a while. Just before Psalms is Job. Go before Job, and you'll hit Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Nehemiah chapter 2. You would think that the greatest verse in Nehemiah, the brightest verse, is in verse 20. <clears throat> Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 20, Then answered I them and said unto them, The God of heaven, He will prosper us. Therefore we His servants will arise and build. And then he speaks to the enemies that were standing there saying, because they wanted to, quote, help and ultimately destroy. He says, But you have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. But what a bright verse where 
Nehemiah says, you know, we're going to do this thing. We're going to set out to rebuild. And you think that's the best verse, but that's not. The greatest scripture is down in chapter 6 and verse 15. Nehemiah 6 and verse 15. <clears throat> so the wall was what? I like that. So the wall was finished in the 25th day of um, uh, Elul in 52 days. Three miles of wall was completely restored. Gates, locks, and doors all done. Now, finishing is far better than just starting. Finishing is much better. Please go to, your, uh, go to Proverbs chapter 13. Go to the right. I'm going to give you some scriptures this morning to start us off before we get into Luke. Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 19. <clears throat> Proverbs 13, 19. Just the first part of the verse. Isn't this true? The desire accomplished is sweet to the soul. Take fishing, for example. What do you go fishing for? To catch a fish. So you're, and nothing. And then when you get that fish and it's accomplished, man, you're happy. And it's true with everything in the Christian life that the desire accomplished, when you finish something, it is sweet, all the way to the soul. Go to Ecclesiastes. After Proverbs comes Ecclesiastes, chapter 7 and verse 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. You know, the end is better than the beginning. Although we all love beginnings. We all love the, the, the birth of a baby. We all love buying uh, uh, a new home or a home that's new to you. We all love the beginning, starting a family. We all love that, but the end is much better if you do it God's way. Paul had great faith and with great intention to do the will of God, but his greatest desire wasn't just to, to start a church. His greatest desire, according to Acts chapter 20, was that I might finish my course, the ministry that God gave unto me. And he was able to say in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Now the question is this, why are there so many starters in Christianity and so few finishers? That's the question to answer. Because until we answer that, we're going to be kind of like lost in the soup. Um, back to Luke chapter 14. Luke 14. <clears throat> Starting there in verse 25, as we began to read there, and there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them. Now, thousands of people took time away from their jobs, their farms, and their families just to hear Jesus, just to be there with him, just to watch him do something amazing, just to see a miracle happen right in front of them. Some of them, so there was one time where there were 5,000, another time there were 4,000 who went days without bringing any food with them. They didn't, they didn't know what would happen. So when they, they, Jesus would pass by in the area, they'd go and they would just find themselves three days later going, 
I'm starving. They had forgotten to eat. That's what it was like. Jesus has been very popular up until this point in Luke. And I got to say, the popularity is very strange. Popularity is not an end, even though most people yearn for it. They look forward to, if they were popular at work, if they were popular at school, if they were popular in church, if they were popular on Facebook, if they were popular, they would be happy. And they're not. People want to be popular. Many craze the buzz of popularity. They would love their name called out in Cork. Weston! Is that Weston? Yeah, that's Weston! <laughs> but it's an empty mirage. It means nothing in the long run. Popularity is bitter and empty and always moving on. So Jesus, as popular as it was, he never let it ever affect him, and he never promoted it. He actually challenges this crowd of men and women and children. And it says there in verse 25, there went a great multitudes with him. We're talking thousands of thousands of people with him. They're following right behind him. And, and he's at the head of this crowd. And it must, have been, it must have been very impressive to see. This man who looked very poor, he wasn't wearing regal and royal clothes. He wasn't riding on a horse. He wasn't commanding soldiers beside him. He was just a Joe so walking down the street and thousands of people were following him. The Pharisees were terrified of this simple looking guy. Not because Jesus looked like he was going to kill anybody, it's because so many people were around him all the time. And they were very envious, by the way, weren't they? Oh, they just couldn't stand that nobody wanted to listen to them droll on. They wanted to be with him. But then all of a sudden, you see Jesus stop. He turned, and then he explains what they're getting into. And he says in verse 26, If any man come to me, just stop there. No one expects Jesus to describe what they're getting into and what it's cost because they thought this is all there is. And, and when they would be with Jesus, they'd say, when are we eating next? Who's going to get healed next? Jesus, when are you going to teach us a nice story again? They thought that's all there was to being a follower of Jesus. So he turns to them and he stops them and he says, you have no idea what you're getting into. So let's talk about what it costs to follow Jesus. Now Jesus gives two requirements of a follower here, verse 25 to 27. Starting in verse 26, if, a man, if any man, that works for women, children, if any man come to me, and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also. He cannot be my disciple. Now, I know people who hate everybody already, but that's not what he's talking about. We'll see it in a moment. Verse 27, And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He says, hate some very important people in your life. Look at his list. You know, I wish he had said, make sure you hate Brussels sprouts. Hallelujah, I'm with you, Lord. <laughs> hate the bullies. Oh, Lord, that's easy. Yeah, I hate my bully. 
My bully's name was Clifford when I was growing up, so I know exactly what I'm talking about. I wish the Lord would have said, make sure you hate cleaning up after two-year-olds and 22-year-olds. But he didn't say that. He said, if you're going to be a follower of me, you must hate the most important people in your life. And he lists them, your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your brothers and sisters, and your own life also, or else you cannot be my follower. Those are tough words to hear. But they have careful meaning. By the way, there are different kinds of hate. Jesus doesn't explain. I mean, can you imagine they're walking along and Jesus says, you better hate your dad. <laughs> hate your brothers. Oh, that's easy. No, sorry. <laughs> hate your sisters. Hate your family. Hate the people that are the most important people to you. You better make sure you hate them and make sure you hate your own life also. And they're like, whoa, did I just hear him right? And the truth is, make sure you keep reading. Because he's not just going to throw it out there and not explain himself. Normally, we take the usual meaning of hate. This is the dictionary meaning to dislike intensely. To feel extreme aversion for or extreme hostility toward, to detest. That's, that's not what Jesus is saying you should do with your dad or your mom or your wife or your sister or your brother. Go down to verse 33. Jesus says, so likewise, whosoever he be of you that, what's the word? Now he explains what he means by hate. He means let go. They may think you hate them. They may think you're being cruel to them. But whosoever forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. You know, what he's asking the disciple to do is don't bring all the baggage into Christianity because he's going to ask us to hold on to a cross. And you can't hold on to both. The crucified life of the Christian, the hard, suffering, struggling, sometimes alone life of the Christian cannot be lived in one hand. He says you've got to take up your cross, and the cross is very heavy. So you're going to have to let go of things that you think are priceless and precious, and they are. He doesn't list anything like I listed, like Brussels sprouts. I would gladly let go of. He lists the things that I would never let go of to cling to something that I would never want, a cross. So Jesus is talking way beyond our normal understanding of the Christian life. Genesis 2.24 is the greatest simple illustration of it. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother. Why? And cling unto his wife. Now why would he do that? Well, his father and mother are very important to him, at least it should be. But there comes a day where he says, bye mom, bye dad. I don't hate you. I love her. And, and when a person decides to follow Jesus, you're going to have to leave in order to cling. And that's his whole point. So he says, by the way, cling to your cross. Now, cross definitely was something to fear and to stay away from. It was an instrument of death. Anybody who ever, ever, would, would, would be carrying a cross was a criminal who was going to die on it. That's all it was. It was not 
a, a, a something to have tattooed on your arm. It was not something to dangle his earrings. It was not something like to ornament and to, 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 to beautify. It was an awful form of torture. That's how the Romans killed their criminals. For the follower of Jesus, our cross is the threat that always hangs over us that the world, the flesh, and the devil will never stop coming against you, trying to hurt you and get you to quit doing the will of God. That is the cross. And it hangs over us every day of our life. God says, carry it. <laughs> Jesus often spoke of the cross like it was something to be embraced, not feared. He says, let go of family. Not that you walk away from them and say, I, I never want to see you again. That's not... He's saying forsake so that your both hands are free. You know the story of a little experiment they did with a monkey. Could have been a three-year-old or a 15-year-old. There was, a, 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 there was a, a cookie jar, chocolate chip cookie jar. And they put these cookies in the middle of a, a pen with monkeys. And the monkey went over, smelled those wonderful chocolate chip cookies, put his hand in, grab two or three at a time, and then poof, poof, trying to get his hand out. And that monkey's screaming, going around on that cage and from the top, and all the other monkeys freaking out. What was wrong? As soon as he grabbed those cookies, he couldn't break out of that bondage. And until he let go, he would never be free. Are you listening? So whatever you've got that's more important to you than Jesus Christ has you in bondage. You say, well, I love my wife, I love my family, and there's many a woman who is not doing anything wrong by putting her family first until she hears the call. Put me first, Jesus says. But, and the Lord says, let them go. Not that you're abandoning them to the world, you're abandoning them to the, to the society. It is that you are not in charge of them anymore. Your life is for Christ. Carry your cross. I don't think this crowd moved for about 15 minutes as they're hearing these words. Now, believe me, not one of those people understood what he said. Not one of them. Everybody going, did he say cross? Did cling to a cross? Or is he insane? But here's the reality. Let me say this. If you're not interested in carrying your own cross, you're not talking about dying, but willing to die. You're not talking about being a savior, but being like him. If you're not willing to be hurt, if you're not willing to suffer, if you're not willing to make personal sacrifices, and if you're not willing to be persecuted and mocked and even killed just for following Jesus, then why are you in this thing at all? It's not just that you can't be, you've chosen not to be. So what's the problem? All those people believe that just physically being with Jesus, just showing up when they heard that Jesus was in the area, just listening to him, that that was discipleship. That was all that was involved. That's all we need to do. But Jesus drew a line in the sand and stopped those multitudes dead in their tracks and said, being popular is not why I came. You need to make a total commitment. You need to make a choice that might cost you everything. 
So he gives an example now of their choice, of their determination. Look in verse 28. Luke 14, verse 28. For which of you, and circle this word, intending. For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? That's our memory verse this month. Lest happily, after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all the beholded begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. Jesus uses two examples of commitment. The intention to build a tower and the desire to fight a war. Now notice that first word, intending. When we talk about intending, we're talking about desiring. And it's a good desire. It's a right desire. Intending to do something good. Everybody wakes up with good intentions, don't we? I'm going to read my Bible this morning. And at 10 o'clock going, I didn't read my Bible this morning. We all start off with good intentions. Did you know good intentions are worthless? Every one of those men and women had good intentions. They had right desires. They wanted to be with Jesus. The question was not their intention. The question was whether they would follow through and actually accomplish what they think they ought to do. So the first guy comes along and he intends to build a tower, he says. Now it's kind of cute. What, what, what kind of a tower is Jesus referring to? Well, it's no simple treehouse. Okay, I tried to build a treehouse. How many of you ever had a tree that you destroyed building a treehouse? Amen, Bill. Amen. Anybody? Oh, come on. You guys didn't live. Oh, my goodness. I got up with a saw and I destroyed a tree, man. It was a beautiful pine tree, 30, 40 foot tall. It was... 20 feet wide, I destroyed it. And, and you know, I was, I was seven, eight, nine years old, something like that. And anybody could do that. No, 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 we're talking about a tower. We're talking about building something you don't do on a Saturday afternoon. This tower had bricks and mortar and concrete. It would take time to build. It would cost lots of money and effort. You know, when Jesus refers to the tower, I want you to think, you say, well, I'm not building a tower. Well, you're trying to build a marriage? You're trying to raise a family? You're trying to start a business? If you're trying to do anything big, it's going to be hard, amen? You want to be like Jesus? You're going to have to work at it, and it's going to cost you. Now, why would somebody try to build a tower? I mean, when you think of towers, I mean, somebody failed there, Amen? Usually we think of like a castle tower or the leaning tower of Pisa or the Eiffel Tower. Castle towers. What are the Irish round towers? Lots of towers. Everywhere you go there are towers. In every country almost. Why would somebody build a tower? Sometimes you, you build a tower so that it's to be on the lookout for invading armies. Sometimes it's so that you have this tower so that if you have vast lands, it's to make sure your workers are working, to make sure there's no people sneaking in trying to take your cattle, 
Sometimes it's, 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 this, it's protective, it's a, an observatory. Whatever reason, they're building something tall and strong. How do you build a tower? Well, Jesus gives two kinds of, of men here. One's a deliberate builder, the other one is an impulsive builder. The first guy sits down with pen and paper and he makes a plan. He takes time to add up all the costs he'll have to pay to build this tower. He considers the coming weather. He decides uh, how, what kind of delays he's going to face. What kind of problems do they normally face in getting supplies? He then checks to see if he has enough money and commitment and determination to see it all the way through to finish it. That's how you're supposed to build things. The second man is impulsive. He doesn't care about the costs or the problems or the obstacles. Eh, he's just, he just going to do it anyway. He likes the idea of having a tower. <laughs> My neighbors have a tower and I'm going to have a tower. He's just going to start anyway. And boy, both of them dig deep trenches and lay deep foundations, which is very important. I want you to show you something. Go to 1 Corinthians. Hold in here. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Because at least you can say both of them got the foundation laid. 1 Corinthians 3. John was referring to it. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 10. According to the grace of God which is given unto me, 1 Corinthians 3.10, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. They're building some structure. But let every man take heed, count the cost, make a plan of how he buildeth thereon. Verse 11, for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is? All right. So both men are pictures of believers who have laid the foundation in their life. Their foundation is the life of Jesus Christ not their own. Their foundation is not the life of Albert Einstein. Their foundation is not the life of Katie Taylor. A lot of girls are growing up saying, I can box. What a way to live. A lot of people, they look to the movie stars, to the music stars, and they watch them burn out. They're building their life on wrong foundations, amen? Some people at the age of 15, 16, they're building their life on drink. They're building their life on... on, on um, the, the, the excitement and the buzz that gets them killed. I built my life since 17 years old on the Lord Jesus Christ. No other foundation can you lay and build your life on than his life. So back to Luke 14, this guy goes out and he hires a lot of workers and he has a good show. I mean, these two guys, maybe they're neighbors. One guy is still sitting down and he's calculating down to the penny Everything, he's just started laying the foundation. The other guy, has, and he's got just a few workers. He's going to spread it out. It's going to take him six months to build this thing. The other guy says, I'm going to get it done in six weeks. So he's got a hundred workers. They're all there. And it's like uh, um, uh, the, the seven dwarfs all singing, hi-ho, hi-ho. It's all fun and games and flash. And look what I'm building. Impulsive people know how to make a good start. But impulsive people almost never finish anything. They move something, they move constantly to something else when it gets hard and tough. Luke 8, don't go there, it says this. 
speaking of the four soils, the four different kinds of hearts that the Word of God react, is reacted to, so they that are on the rock are they which when they hear and they receive the word with joy and I've watched them come in, sit down, love church, love the Bible, love preaching and they receive the word with joy and these have no root. They don't give themselves any time to, to get, get strong and to get, uh, get consistent and to get growing. They have no root and for a while they believe and in the time of temptation they fall away. They don't finish. Jesus warns that too many of the people following him would soon be losing their interest, and they did. And they would walk away, and they'd become his enemy. You know what you're in danger of? Dean, I don't want you to miss this. Ten years from now, if you got hurt trying to serve God, you could be the most worst enemy of Christianity, and yet be saved. Are you listening? If you're not careful about allowing yourself to be hurt by Christians and hurt serving God, if you're not willing to take up your cross and just press on and do it because of Jesus, if you're there for the good time, if you're there because it's comfortable, if you're there because people make laws to protect your religious freedom, if you're only there because it's easy, it will get hard and you will walk away and then you will turn and go, I don't like that. Crucify him, which is what those, that same crowd that's following him is going to end up doing. Both had good foundations in their lives, but only one sweats and labors and sacrifices and strugg struggles and finishes. Which kind of Christian are you? And then it gives a second, oh, by the way, that's what the Eiffel Tower would look like if your man ran out of money. And when all the French started rioting and complaining over it was an eyesore, and so he quit, that's what the Eiffel Tower would still look like today. Are you listening? And that's what everybody would be doing when they went to Paris. <laughs> Some idiot tried to build a big structure and never finished it. Amen? You know what the devil does every morning and every night all across this land? He watches for Christians who quit and goes, Yeah, because that's his thrill, to watch us start and not finish. So, we looked at a man who intended to build a tower. Look at the guy who had an intention to fight a war. If you go back there, it says, verse 31, Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first, and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000? Or else while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desires conditions of peace. Now this guy evidently has to fight. There is an army coming against his little nation. He's only got 10,000 people in the army. He can't be that big. So he's got an army coming at him with 20,000. He looks and he says, uh, how many people can we get together to fight? They go, 10,000. He goes, can we do it? He evidently has no choice but to face this enemy on the battlefield. So here comes this army, and he's got his army. <laughs> and he's got to face it. You know what's amazing? The first king that he describes is very deliberate. He sits down. Jesus used that phrase. He sits down first. He makes plans and preparations. He decides that reacting to a threat 
reacting to the hurt, reacting to the attack, is not the thing he needs to do. He needs to sit down and think. He needs to sit down and plan. He needs to sit down and, and prepare and ask himself, am I going to go to win or do I need to find a way to survive? Jesus implies there's a second king, the impulsive or the flippant kind, who might just impulsively run out to fight out of pride. Did you know most wars are fought out of pride? Okay? Most kings really never thought about what they were getting ready to do. They just looked at all of their serfs, slaves. They looked at their, their enemy and said, that guy didn't look at me right. We're going to war. And most wars here in the Middle East, not in the Middle East, in, 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 in Europe, Forget the Middle East for a minute. That was a whole different thing. But most wars in Europe have been over petty things. Are you with me? They would throw themselves. How many of you have heard of the Hundred Years' War? Probably have. Some of you need to read history. There are a series of wars during the Dark Ages, the Thirty Year War, the War of the Roses, the, the Hundred Years' War. What was all that over? France and England not liking each other. Germany trying to exercise expansion. Uh, Prussia and Russian czars wanted to take more land, but it was always over petty, stupid things. And Jesus says there's a king that fights out of impulse, who doesn't plan to win, doesn't count the cost of what it might cost him. I don't think Adolf Hitler thought about what he might lose when he attacked Poland. I don't think he thought that every square inch of Berlin would be bombed. He never thought of the cost to his country his megalomania would be. Amen? One of these kings win, uh, wins the fight, at least, or at least lives to fight another day, and the other is defeated. And again, I'll ask you this. Which kind of Christian are you? And all this relates to discipleship. Go to Mark, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 16. We'll come back here just a few pages back. Matthew chapter 16. God does not want you to lose what really matters. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 26. For what is a man profited? if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul. It's, it's the extreme. It's impossible to actually own the whole world. It's not possible the whole world be given to you. But if you could actually be given all the wealth, all the power, all the kingdoms, all the people of the world under you, it doesn't compare to the worth of your soul being lost. Or what shall a man give in exchange you can't pay for your soul. You know what God doesn't want you to lose? The things that matter. You know, eternity in hell is the most awful reality that anybody will ever face. Don't you tell me your life is hell. If you are born again, Jesus has invested a lot of building and rebuilding into you and your soul has reaped nothing but blessing. It has, been, it has been blessed beyond measure. No matter what you're going through, you have to say it's still better than when I was lost. 
And he doesn't want you to neglect what God gave you when you got saved. Aren't you glad that God, that Jesus began a good work in us? My life verse is Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So what Jesus starts, guess what he does? He finishes. I need you to go to Hebrews here, great verse, Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, in verse 20. Paul is closing out one of the most amazing books to the Hebrew-speaking people. And he says, Now the God of peace that resurrected, that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, may he make you perfect. Wow. Wives, why don't you pray this prayer for your husband? <laughs> Make you perfect in every good work to do His will, working in you that which is oh, well-pleasing in His sight. Maybe not always well-pleasing in our sight, but it's always through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Now, He expects us to do three things. Number one, protect what He's given us. That's what that observer, that tower is for. He gives an illustration. No normal person goes and builds a house, I'm sorry, builds a tower on the side of his, his plot of ground next to his house. Normally we don't build towers. But Jesus is saying, what if you built a tower? Why would I do that? Because you need to be on the lookout for attacking armies. You need to be uh, um, circumspect, all eyes open, watching for uh, the tricks of the devil, watching for um, uh, the, the, the devices that he plants in your life, the, the thoughts and the, the emotions and, the, and the, um, uh, just the, the, the things that the world throws at you, the visuals. Build a tower that will withstand the weather and will withstand the, 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 the desire to quit, that tower will remain. Build that so that you're ready for your enemy and then fight and win. You don't need to be a king to win a war. You're a Christian, which means you're in the battle whether you like it or not. Thankfully, Jesus, well, Paul says, we are more than conquerors if we would just fight. Not each other. <laughs> but if we would fight our enemy, the devil. He expects us to fight and win. <laughs> Talking to somebody recently, and they said, I'm a pacifist. I'm a pacifist. I wanted to slap them and find out what they did. <laughs> I didn't. But I wanted to anyway. I'm a pacifist. Oh, bleh. Listen, there comes a time as a Christian when the devil's not just knocking at the door, but has knocked the door down and is in your chair. <laughs> you need to take him and throw him out. Amen. And you need to be determined. Am I ready to do it? It's going to cost me. I'll end up bloodied. I'll end up hurt. I will reap <laughs> his wrath but I'm not going to let him win in my home. I'm not going to let him win in my life. I'm not going to let him win in my church. I'm not going to let him win anymore. Amen. And then he says, be willing to lose everything to hold on to what Jesus has given you. Go to Philippians, to the left, Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. Notice his use of the words. Notice what things were gained to me. What was that? 
Probably he had very good parents. Probably he had the best of friends. Probably he had a good bringing up. Probably he had great education. Probably he had the best brothers and sisters. Probably he had everything anybody could ever want. And he says, whatever those things were that were gained, beneficial to me, I counted them lost. Not lost, but negative. I counted them as somebody, something not to hold on to for Christ. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for just the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have, what's the next word? He could speak from experience. He wasn't just intending. He had already experienced suffering the loss of all things. He was writing from prison. And you know where Paul's, you know what he looked forward to? Not getting out of prison, but just being transferred to another prison. And I have suffered the loss of all things, and I do count them, but dung. I add them up, and they're as valuable as dung is. That I may win Christ. Now, when he says win, he simply means that I may choose Christ. Between the two choices, between the things that I count as important in my life, my happiness, and Jesus Christ, I choose him and I win. I'm the winner. <laughs> That's the loser. I'm the winner. To be a disciple of Jesus is more than just coming to church. Does that make sense now? I'm glad you're physically here. It's more than just showing up every time you're supposed to. And by the way, you are supposed to. <laughs> we have Sunday morning service. We have Sunday night service. Don't say it, Pastor. Yes, and we have Wednesday night service. Discipleship is more than just blending with the crowd. Aren't you glad there's a good group here? You can kind of get in and hide and then get out. Should have been here when we were in Blarney and there were nine of us. <laughs> you know, when somebody was sick, we're like, the half the church is gone. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it's more than just listening to the words of the Bible and you've been very good to pay attention to stay with me. But don't let that be all there is to your Christian life. Time to make a commitment, a choice. We have looked at building and rebuilding, and the goal is he didn't just start something and says, guys, let's do this for the rest of our lives. No, he says, let's do this till we finish. This is not therapy. This is war. We must have walls. We've got to have something to defend ourselves. We've got to have something that's strong that will last for generations. So we need to make a commitment. To be a disciple, secondly, is seeing the realities of the road ahead. You know what the road ahead is? Ask Eric. It's a four-by-four four road. The Christian road is not one that is tarmacked and paved and has line markings. It has potholes the size of your car. It has ravines on both sides if you just get off in the slightest amount. It is up and down and dead ends and twists and turns and drop-offs and boulders and weather and enemies and you're just, from the start, you're like, now Eric going, yes! Which is how all Christians should be. The realities of the road ahead is that it's going to be hard many days. If your Christian life is easy for you, God bless you. <laughs> I just live with you for a week. If your Christianity, if it's easy for you to read the Bible every day, if it is just so natural for you to hand out gospel, 
distract. If it is just easy for you to pray for 40 minutes a day, if it is so easy, I want to be with you. For the rest of us, it is hard. The devil's going to make sure it is hard. Your flesh is going to make sure it is hard. Your own family sometimes is going to make it hard. You yourself will get tired and bored and discouraged. You will often get hurt and you will carry scars for the rest of your life. In the end, it will always cost you more than you thought you could ever pay just to follow Jesus. God doesn't want you to lose the most important things that He's invested in you, like your soul, like your family. like the purpose. You know, by the time you're 20, 25 years old, if you don't know the purpose, I'm, I'm not talking about Nathan here and Dean, but I should be, but you should know what God wants you to do with your life. I don't know. Don't ask me. But let me tell you this, because if you don't determine what that is, by sometime soon, the devil will derail you and you'll never be able to go back. You better find something. Say, Lord, what is it you want me to do? I know what I want to do. I know what I think I can do. The Lord says, mine's got a cross. We just need to be willing to lose everything, pay the price, if we're going to build something lasting in our lives. That cost, that works in marriage, that works in relationship, that works if you're going to do anything that matters. So what are you going to do? You're going to be like the majority of people who try to live the Christian life impulsively, flippantly, feelings-based. I feel like going to church today. Don't tell me how many of you said that. I feel like going to church today. That's the majority of people. Never considering the cost and the problem, the obstacle. If there are obstacles between you and doing right, then that's a good sign you're doing right. And don't just come in with some new suit and new hairdo and new clothes and go, look at me, I am a super Christian. You're an impulsive Christian. Because when we don't bat a second look, you're going to go, they don't appreciate me. And you know what? That kind of person will never finish what they start. You know what I found? The ones who have holes on their shoes, they're there every service. They're the ones that tithe. They're the ones that care about souls and they give tracts out. The ones who have the nice car and have all the money and have the uh, two dogs and a cat. I don't know what they have the cat for. But they have, they, 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 they have the good job. They've got the admiration. They've got the popularity. They've got 2,000 friends on Facebook but they'd never hand out a gospel tract. They wouldn't put more than 15 euros in the offering box. They would never come out on a Sunday night. You see the difference? The ones who's willing to pay the price usually carry the scars. You're going to be like the majority of people, or are you going to be like the few? Who from now on every morning, with their Bible in hand, they sit down and they ponder, and they decide, I'm going to finish well. You know what Paul said? I don't want to just finish my course. I want to finish my course with joy. I want to finish this race still loving Jesus and loving people. From now on, every morning, you need to hold your Bible in your hand and, and seek godly influences. You need to open up and say, God, speak to me today. God, put me in, in a place where I will hear godly influences. Make sure I'm at church and, and that, I, that I'm there every time I can be because the one I'm not there is the one message I will need.
Build your life on the foundation of Jesus' life. Don't try to say, that's so old-fashioned. You know, stay in, stay in separate from in relationships until I'm married is so old-fashioned. But that's how Jesus wants it. You know, working a job when everybody else is living on the dole. That's the Jesus way. Build your life on the foundation of Jesus' life. Check to see if you have enough commitment and determination to finish like Him. And then set out to win against every enemy attack. You and I have no choice, but whenever we wake up, guess what? Your enemy's going, let's get going. I want to tear you apart. You have no choice, but bring it on. Don't be the fool who thinks they can just resist anything the devil throws at them, thinks they can always just get back up and recover, never actually working out a plan to fight back with the right kind of weapon, with the right kind of thoughts, with the right kind of heart, and the desire to win. You will fail. You will fall. You will mess up. You will struggle. You will be sometimes mocked and made fun of, but you will decide, I will not quit. Go to John and we're through. Gospel of John, chapter 6. <clears throat> John, chapter 6, and verse 66. From that time, what's the next word? Many of his disciples went back, and they walked no more with him. Then Jesus said unto the twelve, Will you also go away? I like Peter. <laughs> then, then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? There's no, there's no other place to go because thou hast the words of eternal life. You have a way of living that is eternal. Verse 69, And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. I like that. I like that. Now, Peter's going to be tested. Would you agree? He says, we ain't going nowhere, Jesus. He says, well, I got news for you, Peter. You're going to mess up, but it'll be okay. You'll get back up. Let me tell you, so will we. But at least he's got good intentions. And believe me, he never, ever fell again. Let's pray. Father, we're trying to finish up our study on Nehemiah. <clears throat> so this morning the challenge is for us to, to look at what you've tried to work in our lives and say, you know what, you've been doing some amazing things teaching, but it's no good if it's not being lived. If we haven't worked it out, if it's not part of our life yet, if it's not part of our home, if it's not part of our job, if we don't have a ministry, if we don't have a purpose from you, we're, we're, we're losers. We'll be the laughing stock of all the demons and devils of hell. And we will be defeated. And God, I'm so tired of Christians who are supposed to be more than conquerors instead being defeated and being quitters. And it's not that we're not going to fail and it's not that we're not going to mess up. But we're not going to quit. Because we want 
to be able to say, like they said in Nehemiah, they finished the wall. They did it fast. Me, I'm a lot slower. I'm a lot denser. I'm a lot harder to bring around. And I'm so glad you're patient. So glad you're working a perfect work in me. I pray I would let you, and I pray every one of us would let you. But God, we got to take some initiative and protect that work and build on it and be committed to it, that it's a good thing. And it's not just a Sunday thing. Because in this room, there may be two, three, four who've never been born again yet. And they're watching Christians and they're looking around and they don't see any difference between them and these supposed Christians. They see people come to church and they come to church. They see people with the Bible and they open the Bible. But they don't see any commitment. They don't see any real spiritual warfare. They don't see any real grit that says, I've got to finish. I've got to finish with joy. I want my life every day, every year to be more joyous, more fruitful. I pray that the lost would realize their most priceless possession, their soul, is in the balance. And don't look at us because we're all failures. Don't look at the Christians because we're all going to fail you. But we wish we could encourage you that it's worth it. Because you will be scarred. You will be hurt. But once you let go of your old life and the things you hold precious and cling to the life that Christ gives you, which is a life carrying a cross, not just carrying troubles, but carrying attacks and carrying persecutions. And it's worth it. Because Jesus, you make it worth it. Just your presence makes everything worth singing about. Lord, I don't know how to finish this. I have to ask you, please help everyone to make a committed choice today. Either to be saved, or if they're saved, to say, I'm going to put all of my life into 2019 with commitment, with purpose, with joy, with zeal. I, I am going to start winning instead of being defeated. In Jesus' name, amen.